This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. Sometimes I wonder why I'm still in politics right now. Why? Not just because of like what Trump's doing and stuff and like the insanity and that I still keep my ambitions, but gotta keep up the good fight, gotta go on with my goals, whether I work in the public sector, private sector, and yeah. I asked myself this last week. I was just asking one of my friends at work. Um, I'm not sure why I do politics anymore. And I come from a conservative think tank. Yeah. Like, that's uh, this has been discouraging. This is a complete repudiation of everything that we work on and believe yeah. in and that we thought conservative Americans believed in. I don't know why I do politics anymore. I just kind of want to do community work at this point. Can, can we be really cheesy for a second and give each other a hug? If you come over to my side of the table. Can we meet halfway? You mean over the table? No, just like here. Right there? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I'm getting that. Oh my gosh. What a hug. Oh my god. You really needed this, bro. Oh, we're hugging it out. Oh, wow. Hug it out. Whew. Hug it out. That was the best I've ever had. Me too, man. <laughs> <laughs> never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to episode 22 of Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Stephen Kent. I'm your other host, Swara Saleh. And today, we're going to talk about the conservatism of Star Wars. We've got a packed show for you, so we are going to move along pretty briskly. Um, We're going to get started off with talking about Star Wars at the recent Women's March. We're going to look back on our episode discussing Star Wars as liberal. Um, You know, that was featuring a piece by Mike O'Connor on RetroZap. It was called Sounding Like a Separatist. And then we will go into our main topic, Star Wars as Conservative, uh, based off a piece by RetroZap writer Becky Sharp. And then we will round it out on a chat about tribalism featuring, once again, Mike O'Connor, followed by, of course, listener email in our legendary Bantha Fodder segment. But first, Suara, what's going on in Star Wars? The Last Jedi! The Last Jedi! When I found out the title, that's how I wanted to yell it out. That's how I wanted to express my deep, deep love and passion for this title. I think it's pitch perfect. I look forward to seeing what Ryan Johnson and the team have uh, dug out. And I'm really excited about this. I have I was always excited for episode eight, but now I have a renewed excitement with this simple, powerful, and deep, amazing title. How about I, you? I really like your, uh, your pivot from... Uh childlike excitement that goes on in your head to then now i will present myself in a calm and dignified and intellectual manner you've gone and insight it to the workings of my mind Stephen. i really really do um, i'm stoked about this title it's um it, it's it's a very it, i don't know it's just it seems very classic to me uh it's very simple and i think it's probably just because i, I keep thinking like the last samurai um it's very true to like the jedi as a uh as an as an art form or as like a secret cult and like you know this is the last of the group it's the last standing i think it's very cool 
Um, I think there's that great outstanding question about whether or not it's singular or plural. Does it mean um, Ray and Luke or does it just mean Ray or does it just mean Luke? And then maybe we're still going in the direction of whether or not the Jedi uh, are what Luke even believes in anymore. Because um, we've talked a little bit on the show about how Star Wars is moving into this sort of gray area with the Force where maybe the Jedi and the Sith are becoming a thing of the past and now we're moving into the realm of the Bindu and believing in a little bit of everything. So I'm, I'm almost wondering if we're headed towards dead Jedi or if we're heading towards these living Jedi saying, you know what, we don't actually want to be Jedi because this hasn't worked historically. So I'm going to go at this from the franchise standpoint. You're still going to have a figure that is at least like a Jedi or fulfills the role of a Jedi in the Star Wars movies. I mean, I think they still want to make a sequel, sequel trilogy, episodes 10, 11, 12. As for who it's referring to, I think it's supposed to be both interpretations, singular and plural. It's supposed to evoke the theme that Luke and slash or Rey are the last and they're in this desperate situation, which is also signified by the red title font. What do you think of that, by the way, the red title? Red title font is really exciting. I think it's it's gritty. Uh, it makes it look like it's going to be a little bit more of a dark movie. Uh, it reminds me, obviously, of uh, Revenge of the Sith. And then I believe that there was red used at some point in the legacy of Return of the Jedi. Um, so that's pretty exciting, and I, I'm all about it. Um, unfortunately, we do have to move on. Uh, everyone else is talking about The Last Jedi, so we're going to talk about something else. Suara, this past week, you were at the Women's March in Washington, D.C. This is a march that encompassed millions of people across the world uh, in a bunch of major cities across the U.S. Uh, my hometown of Raleigh, North Carolina, was just absolutely overwhelmed. And uh, the mall of D.C. and the streets of downtown D.C. were absolutely overwhelmed by this march, which was uh, largely positive um, and largely about a sense of unity. Um, we'll talk a little bit about about that. But Suara, tell us about Star Wars at this march, because that is why we're going to be talking about it. Um, there was a strong Star Wars underpinning to the tone and the content and the political and cultural overlap of this march. And it is one that is actually pretty rich to talk about. So, so kick us off, man. Princess Leia, General Leia, Carrie Fisher, her image was everywhere. There were signs with the, cla- with the almost new classic image of a woman's place is in the resistance. You had Leia quotes on posters. You had variations of her image or her outline with her head buns. And for me personally, seeing that was really enriching, really uh, supportive for all of us at the cause and I yelled out to some people that's an amazing sign may the force be with you and they yelled back it was really really encouraging to see that it almost looked like comic-con in some places there was so much cosplay going on at the women's march which I thought was pretty cool exactly about the march itself over 500,000 in DC alone and Again, you saw Leia's image everywhere, and even if you were only casually into Star Wars, you get that. You get this who this iconic person is and how she is the one to rally the troops, as it were, in this march. And, you know, Leia, from the, apo- from the moment she appeared on screen, she's been a symbol of resistance and rebellion, always in the face of seeming defeat. Her entire planet got destroyed in Episode Four, but she still carried on the fight. I was just thinking about this. She taught us that no matter how desperate or futile things seem, such as after this election for many progressives, it's important to carry on the fight for doing what's right. 
and things have been desperate for progressives and even some conservatives recently. There were some conservatives at the Women's March as well across the world in the United States. It's true. I saw many, many, many of my folks down there. Right. And they take inspiration from Leia as well. She reminds us to carry on the fight. And this is just one of the fundamental reasons why her presence was so strong at the Women's March. That's awesome. I, I particularly, one thing that stood out to me here is almost the, the sense of marketing around this movement on the left, uh, which is the opposition movement to the Trump administration and the Republican majority in Congress. And I'm really, really intrigued by how heavily they have marketed the resistance as they, uh, the name of their movement. And I think it's kind of not surprising that they've got the media echoing whatever talking point they want, but they are getting it done. They've got the media calling them resistance. They are calling themselves the resistance. It's a trending hashtag. It's a topic across all social. They have actually created a sense of unity around this, which I think is very alike uh, the Tea Party, in a sense. There's this unifying banner to, we are an opposition movement, this is what we are, and this is what we're calling ourselves. And the death of Carrie Fisher, I think, had a role in spurring this on. There is a huge, uh, renewed sense of love for her as a leader um, for progressive women. And there's also just still the Force Awakens looming around in cult pop culture as something that people are pretty excited about. And this term out there, I almost was, was surprised that there wasn't more calling themselves the Rebel Alliance, but latching on to the resistance as a Force Awakens term. But I think it also just works better in politics. The Rebel Alliance is a little bit incendiary, but the resistance works in a way that the opposition doesn't. It, it romanticizes a bit. What was your take on that? Yeah, exactly. It was right after the election, which was controversial for many people in the country. Based on everything Trump had said during the campaign, there are so many reasons to resist essentially what his administration wants to put forth, including some stuff we've seen this week. It makes sense. It gives a renewed sense of hope and... Yeah, it's a lot of standing up for others the way that I see it. Um, you know, there was the anarchist uh, uh, outbreak after the election, and that was you saw a lot of those resist signs at that event too. You know, where there was like actually like things being lit on fire and windows being broken. It was like resist fascism before it actually happens, and I I think that's entirely disingenuous. They would have done it no matter what the election outcome was, um, but with this women's march movement, I, I've just really enjoyed seeing. Leia as a face of it, and as it should be. And Mark Hamill uh, tweeted out, you know, I know where she stood, you know where she stood, and, and then something else after that. It was such an honor to see her standing with you today, bigly, hashtag resistance, <laughs> hashtag worldwide women's march. Love it. Yeah, no, I, I like the way he wove, wove in bigly there as well. One thing that is, has been out there in the realm of criticism is, um, and this is mostly in, in the conservative ethos, is this idea that the media is practicing favoritism um, over the titles, which, you know, if you were uh, if you remember the Tea Party movement, then you were called obstructionist. They would not call you by what you wanted to be called by. Um, I think that there's there's some legitimacy there with the media uh, and their and their natural tendencies on how they report things. Um, but there's also the conservative victim complex, which is very real that you think everyone's always conspiring against you in some way. And 
there's this idea that the Tea Party movement in 2010 was not romanticized properly. Um, I think that's actually wrong. The Tea Party movement in and of itself was incredibly romantic about what they were doing. They called themselves the Tea Party. I mean, they were out there wearing uh, their cosplay of founding fathers in Revolutionary War outfits uh, and Benjamin Franklin outfits. It was it was it was hilarious, and it was the same kind of uh, of spirited theatrical vibe to their political movement as well. And what they seized on was the heroes of 1776. And they made it out to be that they were the heroes of the founding fathers and that if you were aligned with freedom and liberty and all the ideas of founding America, then you obviously had to be part of the Tea Party movement. And if you weren't, then you weren't with the founding fathers. And there's already that romanticism there. So I kind of find this criticism of it on the right to be a little bit half-hearted considering that we seized on like the most foundational American value and American picture, um, which would be the revolution. Um, so I think everybody gets to do this and it just depends on what you pick. It's just kind of cool to see Leia being that pick for the left right now um, at this time in our history. Key difference for the Tea Party movement is that Funnily enough, they didn't use any Star Wars imagery, so maybe we're just not paying as much attention to that. Only but... Rand Paul, but that was a little bit after the fact. <laughs> and Ted Cruz, right? After the fact as well, like kind of a couple years down the road, more like 2014. Right. I agree with you that there is that, I would say maybe slight double standard. Um, the thing is, in this movement... One might argue you have more concrete things to, quote, resist, things that policies that you can see potentially being put into action, whereas the Tea Party might have seemed more general. So maybe that's another reason why you don't have that same sort of notion of romanticizing. If If I may, actually, I think that that is inaccurate in the sense that movements on the right have been more successful because they have been more direct and targeted in their approach on the left what you have happen um and wall street is a occupy wall street's a great example of this and i i fear the women's march movement is going to go down this road as well is that there's no one single issue um they're they're not able to unite behind like this is what we're pushing for and this is what we call a win legislatively um when you go to these movements i think occupy is, is a good example there's a person with a sign for everything. There's no designated leader. There's no leadership structure. On the right, the Tea Party movement in its inception from 2010 to 2012 was opposing um, the bailouts um, and imposing, ah, shoot, um, it was the, um, opposing the bailouts and opposing the initial spending package, the stimulus. That was the original uh, purpose and the meaning of it. And it was the uniting factor. It was fiscal conservatism. Now that changed over the course of time into a a bunch of different splinter issues. But you had outside groups and thought leaders on the right pouring in their money and their time towards the fiscal conservatism of busting the bailouts and also stopping the stimulus. And then once that was done, then it sort of moved on into other areas. Mm. Um, But I think that usually the right is a little bit more targeted in that regard. I think you might have something of the reverse happening now with the women's movement where you have all these various issues, LGBT rights, um, environmental issues, speaking out against uh, discrimination against Muslims, and a variety of others that may 
I believe, are now starting to converge into tackling more concrete policies that could be put into place from the executive branch, from Congress, mm-hmm. and that's where you get your more explicit targeting. It's a very interesting dichotomy almost. Yes, absolutely is. Politics is very dynamic, as is Star Wars, which is what we're going to talk about next. Yay. Um, like that segue. So the premise of this entire conversation kind of started with a piece by Mike O'Connor on RetroZap, uh, which actually ended up going over onto Newsweek as well. It was a big hit. It's called Sounding Like a Separatist, and it outlined the uh, pretty much the progressive mantra of Star Wars. Why Star Wars is a liberal opus, I think, was the words that were used to describe it. And it kind of went over a bunch of key points. We had Mike on the show uh, to talk about this with us and kind of guide us through his piece a little bit. And the basic pillars of it was author's intent, you know, the story of Vietnam being an inspiration for George, I'm sorry, for, yeah, for George Lucas, and then sort of the prequel area as well uh, with George Bush, Dick Cheney, uh, and the war in Iraq. And there was pieces in there about, um, you know, rebellion against the military industrial complex, um, you know, that Palpatine was Nixon, uh, that the empire is incredibly dictatorial and gets involved in people's lives too much. There was, a, there was a real piece in there that I enjoyed a whole lot about individualism versus collectivism and that Star Wars is driven by collectivism as a good thing and um, that we all do better when we work together, which I think Mike and I had our, our biggest point of disagreement on the idea of what collectivism is. I think that was actually probably one of my favorite conversations I've ever had on this show was kind of parsing collectivism and Star Wars and, and what the real angle is there. Um, and then there was also, you know, money in politics, you know, Newt Gunray, Newt Gingrich, and then Palpatine and his emergency powers being very akin to the Patriot Act. There was a lot of great stuff in there. And, and Mike was a really gracious guest um, to talk through that with us. So the next piece in the RetroZap series is by Becky Sharp. It is called Star Wars Politics Part 2, The Right Side Strikes Back. And Becky goes through a whole lot of different pillars of how conservatives take in Star Wars. And I didn't read this too much as a um, why Star Wars was meant to be conservative, but why there's not some sort of line in the sand for why a conservative doesn't walk away from Star Wars loving it. Um, You see this a lot on message boards and in conversations like, Star Wars is liberal for this and this reason. I can't believe a conservative could watch this and not see that. It's not that they don't see that. It's that they see other things that sort of tip the scale in, in, in the way that they, that, they wanna, they, that they want to feel about it. Because um, we all want to love Star Wars. There's no way you don't want to love it. Um, now, what I do want to put down as a big disclaimer um, is this is a continuation. I actually kind of hide. So what I do want to kind of put down as a disclaimer is that in this segment, we will first be addressing Star Wars in the George Lucas era. This is the original trilogy and the prequels. A lot of this debate around Star Wars politics comes back to the author's supposed intent. So the best way for us to take on this task is to separate the eras of Star Wars. Um, And after this, we will talk about cases within The Force Awakens and Rogue One and extended literature within the canon. But again, we will be intentionally confining the context and facts of our discussion to the Lucas films. So there will not be any, well, we learned something about uh, politics in, in, in uh, you know, the politics of the, of the empire in 
the prequels and it's contradicted by what we learn in Claudia Gray's bloodline or in the force awakens, because we're going to deal with George Lucas's world of star Wars and Disney in kind of a separate chapter. Okay. So according to Becky Sharp, star Wars reflects an affinity towards traditionalism, faith and religion, moral clarity, central values of freedom and uh, freedom from tyranny and also the idea of crony capitalism versus capitalistic democracy, which is a word that George Lucas has thrown around. So let's start with traditional values. Suara, when you think of traditional values, what do you think of and what comes to mind with Star Wars? On traditional values first, it's subjective because you have various traditions, you have various communities, you have various countries, you have various religions, the list goes on. So for my tradition, I was brought up as an American. I believe in the cores of our country and liberty, the pursuit of happiness, the rule of law, etc. Um, it's yeah. It's but what about leave it yeah. to Beaver? <laughs> oh God! <laughs> All right, well, let's let's back it up then. So, in in Becky's piece, she talks about family, marriage, gender roles, and and she specifically hones in at the end on Padme's vulnerability as a female character. So let's talk about family in Star Wars. Family uh, is relatively traditional in the sense that in Star Wars we see a whole lot of the nuclear family structure. We have recognizable families such as Aunt Owen, Uncle Peru. We have the Antilles family. Um, even in the in the case of Anakin's upbringing with Shmi Skywalker, the absence, the one absence of a father and a single parent. Uh, is part of a virgin birth situation, which is again like just kind of hones right into a religious uh, religious underpinning, which is very uh, familiar and and dear to conservatives. But it's not so much the long list of examples of traditional family structures in Star Wars that I think she's talking about is the absence of non-traditional family structures. Now you have a group of friends who become like family, but for the most part, George Lucas did not push any sort of boundaries in the original trilogy or the prequel trilogy when it came to family and marriage. You have Padme and Anakin taking on a traditional marriage, uh, even if it's going to be in secret. They didn't just go off and kind of have a baby in secret and have like a secret family. They did get married. They sealed the deal. Um, Now, I think that this is a little bit, I think a bit of a reach to say that like, there are tr- these are traditional messages, um, but what they are is it makes traditionalists feel respected and and safe in the in the space of <laughs> safe in the space, feel respected and and feel at home when watching these movies. You're making a face. What does that mean? I think these were films that were designed to make business. I think in this late <laughs> '70s, you couldn't be pushing some LGBTQ. Uh, message you couldn't really be pushing the boundaries for what the audience would find palatable at the time and i think it's overall just happenstance that you do have this traditional structure it's not as though george lucas except for episode one we'll get to that later was trying to say he absolutely loves traditional values and that's why you see these essentially tropes in the star wars films as you you have in other films at the time and throughout American film history. So I didn't find this argument that compelling. It's a good way to start it off. She talks a bit about George Lucas's upbringing. She says that at his heart, he is a traditionalist. He might have come 
from the countercultural youth quake of the 1960s, but he's equally a product of 1950s America. And in that sense, he didn't push the envelope. And we know that he didn't push the envelope. We also know that his hands were tied from pushing the envelope. Um, he was uh, asked at one, at one point in a, in a convention setting, you know, why there were not more female fighters in the original trilogy. And, and I, there's a quote in here somewhere directly, but he says it was hard at that time to get people, and I think maybe himself, to see women in a combat situation. Um, that's just a mark of the times. That mark is very different now. But the original trilogy was made in a different time. That is why you have an incredibly whitewashed rebellion, and now that rebellion is not whitewashed. It is incredibly brown, and that's fantastic because it's a really big galaxy. And the politics of like casting in the original Star Wars films... The, the arguments around it always feel disingenuous to me because it's not about some sort of message. It's about white people in the real world just dominated culture at that time. And there, you, yeah. you couldn't cast people of color in major roles. It's just different now. It's not like it's making a huge statement about the world of Star Wars so much as that the world of the casting is just different. And it's so much better because it feels now more like a real story. That scene of the briefing on the Death Star in, in A New Hope is just nauseating. I'm like, really? Like, this is the rebellion? It's so boring. <laughs> Wait, which scene? The briefing in A New Hope on the Death Star before, right. they, before they make the trench run. For a second, I thought yeah. you said meant on the Death Star, as in the Imperials <laughs> talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, but so so Becky kind of talks a little bit about traditionalism in that sense. And, you know, and I, I, I will concede that the original Star Wars trilogy and even the prequels, um, it didn't push the envelope, so it's not repulsive to people of conservative backgrounds. You, when you when you talk about, you know, traditionalism in Star Wars, again, we're not trying to like make a list of all the examples of where it's traditional, so much as the areas where it's not untraditional, um, and that's kind of the difference here. She brings up Padme as a woman who is strong. She fights. She kicks some butt. She also shows a little bit of skin in a traditional sense um, and the way that film has kind of always been. Um, and she's also romantic. She's vulnerable. She can be taken advantage of by a, a smooth-talking and emotionally insecure male. Now, she gets a lot of flack today. Padme gets a lot of flack on the left. Tell me about that because this is something that I think it needs deeper discussion she goes from being a teenage warrior queen in episode one to being a really influential senator to being a love interest who still, as you say, kicks ass, obviously, with skin showing because Hollywood. Yeah. To being a pregnant wife who just stays around and talks to her husband and is there to be meant to be emotional support and then... Barefoot and uh, pregnant. Barefoot and pregnant <laughs> and... Her entire story arc is revolved around serving, serving Anakin, there, serving Anakin, just yeah. being quote being there for him. But even in that, not really engaging as much as she could have supposedly. By the way, I suggest for listeners to watch the deleted scenes from Episode Three. She does a lot more in there, especially with like 
the rebellion and delegation. Yeah, of she's work, she's working politics. She gets up in the emperor's face in one of those deleted scenes. Yeah. of the delegation of three thousand. It's really really 2000. good. Two thousand. It's really really good. She works politics in the deleted scenes, and it's all out the window. It's really just disheartening, honestly, seeing a, such a powerful character. Um, going from essentially leading her own rebellion on her planet against these invaders to just being a, quote, stereotypical female-supporting character who becomes a victim, like, it becomes a victim at the end. It's, re- again, really disheartening. Comparing her to Rey or Leia, I believe that is a fair comparison because this is all within the Star Wars franchise. Yeah. Just shows how disappointing pointing some of her potential could have been as for the female vulnerability aspect there are a lot of better ways to show that rather than what we got at Padme and some of the prequels yeah we've we've talked about this uh, a couple of times now with with Kristen Soltis Anderson conservative pundit uh, right. you know, she, she's on Fox News CNN and uh, ABC um, and she grew up a Padme fan and then she grew right out of it when she kind of realized what they did with her character but what Becky is kind of talking about is that, you know, with Padme, you're seeing someone who's traditionally feminine. She wears pretty dresses. She knows how to get all nice and dolled up. She looks great. Um, but then she will also uh, fight back. She's tough. She's tough as nails. She really is. But she can, she's emotionally vulnerable. She is susceptible to love and feelings and giving all of these things away to a man um, that is not held back at service of a social agenda by a filmmaker. And that kind of all goes back to what is Hollywood trying to push with us? Are they pushing story or are they pushing social agenda? And I think what Becky sees, and I I think this was actually a really astute observation, is that what is great about Padme is that she is dynamic. And I think it is, I think it's problematic the amount of criticism that she gets these days from progressive fans for being who she is. We don't have an alternative text to suggest that she's anybody else. That's just who she is. You either love her or you hate her. And you take her as being a woman for what she does and what she's accomplished. And she has accomplished a hell of a lot. And just the last thing that I want to say on that, on the right, one thing that we often always kind of hold up and annoyed. I don't mean we as in me because this is not my type of thing. But, you know, like the uh, the trucker blonde girls. Like we, we sell pink guns uh at walmart they're pink rifles and and there's this entire subculture of the country girl she wears boots and a trucker hat drives a pickup truck has a pink gun in the back and she's also a party girl like that's that's kind of the this this ethos in conservative and middle america about you can be tough as nails and you can kill a dude if he tries to step over you um but it's not a crime to look pretty and i think that that's what she is getting over on I just wish the execution was a lot better. Oh, it would have been a better movie if it had been a better execution. And I think there is a lot of subtext there, and Padme has certainly accomplished a lot, but we didn't really get to see it. We just got to see her be a love interest, have babies, then die. You love Padme when you're young. Um, my, My daughter loves Episode 2. It's her favorite Star Wars movie, and it's because Padme fights those animals in the arena. She loves it. Um, she doesn't care what the other people are doing. She watched it last night, actually. Mm. And she goes, 
Anakin's a real wimp, isn't he? <laughs> and she's, she's like six years old, and she's looking at Padme up on there, fighting those beasts, swinging off and kicking uh, the ah, the cat creature. The Acolay. Ac- the Acolay is the spidery oh, one. Oh, that's right. Um, I can't remember the name of the oh, beast. Oh, it was the Nexu, I think. Nexu. Yes, you're right. The Nexu. Kicking the Nexu. Anyway, she's just, she's just completely mystified with Padme, okay? And she doesn't like episode three too much because it's pretty dark. But when she watches it here in a couple of years, I think she will ask why Padme didn't do more. And a lot of young girls have asked that as well. It would have been better for the story if Padme had done more. And it would have been better uh, for Star Wars in general if Padme had done more. But what she did in the context of the movies that we have is not offensive. It is not offensive to leave being a warrior and being a queen to being a senator and a wife who gets pregnant. And that's not, there's, there's no crime there. And I think that that's what a lot of people see uh, in criticism of Padme is being a little bit wrong. And we talk about this in normal politics all the time. Is there anything wrong with being a full-time mom and not working? That kind of thing. In feminism, it always says there are various types of women and no one should be judged for their life decisions. It's just that there was a sort of mixed signaling in these movies and you didn't really get what type of woman they were trying to make Padme out to be. It shifted one way or the other from being a kick-ass queen to a warrior in the arena to being a barefoot pregnant woman. Yeah, It, again, just wasn't executed the best it could have been. And as you said, it left us wanting a lot more. Yeah, I think a lot of people see that and they see a complete um, disingenuous shift on the character, on the part of the production team and the writers. And I think on the side of other people, they just go, eh, that was just kind of a big nothing burger. And Alison Gronowitz from <laughs> um, from Mary Sue, if you were listening, we are going to have you on to talk a little bit more about this a whole episode dedicated to this issue because it is much more important uh, to have y'all on uh, than have Suar and myself talking <laughs> about this. Um, so let's move on. The question of faith and religion, I think, is one of the most basic Uh, commentaries on Star Wars is that Star Wars has an incredible uh, Christian overtone to it. Um, There's the father and son angle, the sacrifice angle, the redemption angle, and kind of like getting over sin. And it's much more in depth than what I am making it out to be here in 20 seconds. But, you know, Suarez, we talked on the last episode about faith in Rogue One. And we're not going to talk about Rogue One because that's against my rules for today. (laughs) (laughs) We already talked about it. But, you know, faith and religion in the original Star Wars movies and the prequels, you know, why is that so important and why does that appeal to conservatives? It's pretty explicit that Shmi Skywalker is meant to be the Virgin Mary. And Qui-Gon says explicitly, perhaps he was conceived by the midichlorians. By the way, on midichlorians, remember, they're not the Force. They're a conduit for the Force. But in this instance... Can we or actually can we think of the midichlorians as the archangel Gabriel? I don't know. I think it, looking back on when the prequels originally happened and midichlorians became a thing, this was an area where conservatives lost their mind. Really? Because yeah, remember? Right. I mean, I, I don't know if you, I don't know if you've gone back to read any of the backlog of op-eds and articles in this, but <laughs> and conservative writers were incredibly perturbed that George Lucas. Um, took science right into the middle of the force. Mm. This has been an incredibly spiritual thing since 1977. And then he comes back in 1999 and injects science into it. And that was incredibly offensive to a lot of people. (laughs) And that remains in the conservative space, but it also remains in fandom as well of people who don't identify as conservatives. They were like, this is spirituality. And now it feels cheaper. 
I completely disagree um, because God gave me my blood cells as well. And my blood cells do wonderful things. And that's what the midi-chlorians like are kind of all about is, is the Wi-Fi signal sort of thing is how well you pick up on the force. Um, they don't have to be mutually exclusive, but you know, faith and religion in Star Wars, you know, Yoda and all of his wonderful lines and scenes on Empire Strikes Back and the whole idea that Luke is trying to save and redeem his father from you know, what are essentially his sins. Conservatives since 1977 and through the 80s have seen this as a story of redemption and as, as majority of conservatives tend to identify, not necessarily be, but identify, which is always a different indicator in polling, identify as Christians um, that appeals to them. It's a story of coming back to the light from the dark, and that is the, the sin, redemption, born-again angle. Um, the fact that Darth Vader dies after being redeemed and then is reborn in a sense in spirit as a man who's younger, happier, looks more healthy. I mean, that just sort of just screams to me um, my biblical upbringing and my Christian upbringings um, about what it means to be born again, um, except you don't die. <laughs> right. right. Luke is to Jesus as Vader is to the whole of humanity. And Luke sacrificing himself to the emperor represents what Jesus did, sacrificing himself for humanity's sins. I can definitely see that. And, you know, talking about that, viewing it from that angle and from the episode one angle and what Anakin was meant to do as the, quote, chosen one, you definitely see that inspiration that George took. You know, he grew up, I believe, a pretty devout Christian and also in an attempt to make episode one in the concept of the chosen one more palatable to a, you know, by demographics, a mostly Christian audience. He was pretty effective at that. And I don't see anything wrong with that. I think it's great for conservatives or uh, liberals who have deep religious beliefs uh, of Christian denominations to see that and to again, relate Star Wars to their own world and see how the example of Anakin and Luke can be applied to their own lives. Anakin went a certain way with his abilities, with his destiny, and Luke went another. So, yeah, I think there are some beautiful allegories in there. It kind of reminds me of Chronicles of Narnia, actually. Oh, yeah? Yeah, despite C.S. You know, growing up, I absolutely loved those books. And despite C.S. Lewis saying he wasn't trying to make an allegory, I mean, he said Aslan the Lion was obviously was the son of the uh, great father or something. I forget. Yeah. It was pretty explicitly an allegory. And even though I've never been a Christian and I never will be, I'm not religious at all, I still appreciate that allegory because it enriches the Star Wars mythology and again, puts it in a way that's palatable for all of us to understand of whatever religious background or non-religious background we're of. And it again, like seeing it through that angle of the examples, how we conduct our own choices with our own abilities, with our own connection to the Force, that sends a really powerful message. With moral relativism, uh, Becky Sharp hones in on moral clarity in the original trilogy. And I think this is 100% true, and it is why you saw um, uh, Reaganism combined with Star Wars uh, in the 1980s uh, for Empire Strikes Back. 
and Return of the Jedi. And we talked about this on a past episode called Star Wars Goes to Washington. Uh, we talked about it on a panel as well at Virginia Comic Con. So if you want to go back through the backlog and look at that, I highly recommend you take the time. We talked about how uh, Star Wars became a thing in the Reagan administration to message to people about the Soviet Union. And so let's talk about it in that context. So moral clarity in the original trilogy. We've got the light side. We've got the dark side. We don't have the gray. You are either on the dark. You are either on the light. You're with the empire or the rebellion. The rebellion is not presented to be flawed. They are presented to be good. They are fighting for freedom. And the empire is fighting for the ability to subjugate, kill, and destroy. That is pretty much it. We've gotten policies of the empire, inconsistencies of the rebellion, gray areas of the rebellion in recent canon, which we won't talk about. (laughs) But in the original trilogy, this is cut and dry. You're either on the side of good or you're on the side of evil. So this is an area where conservatives have always historically been drawn to. Reagan, moral clarity, take it away. I mean, Reagan said the essentially the evil empire was a Soviet Union and what they were doing to subjugate their own citizens and to subjugate their neighbors and how American way of life could be threatened by them. Before Reagan, you had a bit of the Red You had the Red Scare, which was a dark yeah. period in our history. Start, as we discussed at Virginia Comic Con, this was Virginia Comic Con. Yeah, yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As we discussed at Virginia Comic Con, this was a very effective marketing technique to take the term evil empire and apply it to this outside force. So it's sort of a positive feedback. You know, Star Wars comes in at the time of the Reagan administration and they're able to capitalize on Star Wars success for their own policy ends. At the same time, in Star Wars, you have that clear moral clarity, which I don't believe has to be a conservative standpoint. It's something that you can apply to anyone of any political background. When you see something that's wrong, you know it's wrong from your own conscience, from your own understanding of the world. Like, if I may mention real world politics for a second. I mean, yeah, it's Beltway (laughs) Banthas. This Muslim ban, as you mentioned. And how I don't believe it's a conservative standpoint. You've already had prominent Republicans, including John McCain, Lindsey Graham, Ben Sass, and others speak out against it. So I think that's something, excuse me. It's the politics yeah. of fear. It's the politics it's of fear. It's the politics right? of fear. It's not the politics of security, and it's not the politics of good versus evil. I think the the moral clarity question with the the Muslim ban thing that I was referencing was um, the good in helping refugees and the good uh, and right. what good you're achieving in turning them away. There's this idea. Yeah, yeah. I, I I don't want to go too too far down that road right now, but right. you know, with Ronald Reagan, um, he said in 1967. This was a long time before he ended up becoming president. We'll preserve for our children this: the last hope of man on earth or will sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. He was saying this about the unwillingness to confront the Soviet Union uh, during the Cold War under the current administrations, and that we were not doing enough to combat the spread of communism. And I want to kind of reiterate that last line, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. 
Um, it sounds a lot like Jen Arso. <laughs> and, you can, <laughs> and you condemn the galaxy to an eternity of darkness if you don't step up to this evil. If you won't step up to this evil, well, you step up to the next one. With conservatism, folks who came up in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, there's always been this strong kind of moral clarity about good and evil. You saw this with George Bush as well in the War on Terror. And it was just, there's a line in the sand. He pretty much said it. Um, and you're either with us or you're against us. And you're either with terrorists or you're against them. And this is why we're going to go forth and engage them. The idea of the war on terror was we're going to take the fight to them before they bring the fight to us. Um, the idea with Iran has always been that this is a tyrannical regime and they are intent on destroying human life. So we're going to deal with them first. And that kind of comes back to the Tarkin doctrine and the doctrine of not necessarily the Death Star, but of preliminary action, a preliminary strike to maintain peace and order. But on the right, there has always been an appeal to having clear dark and clear light. There's not a lot of interest historically in the gray. Um, because being in the gray meant that you were being squishier, that you were compromising for evil or compromising for sin or compromising for, for you know, the darkness. And we pretty much, I always kind of come back to the religious context, like you're either with it or you're against it. Um, so I feel like that was an aspect of the original trilogy that was incredibly appealing and people walked away from it feeling like this is a movie for me. Sociologically, politically, and religiously, like I identify with this black and white situation and that can be applied to people on the left as well it can be applied to people who have such a clear moral vision who tend to see the world in absolute black and white of course we now know and as the new star wars movies and new canon is showing there are areas of gray we need to consider but still there you have these people from all over who see this message and it deeply deeply resonates with them and they will use that to inspire them in their own cause and in their own beliefs about the world so one of the next pieces that she that she honed in on that i i thought was pretty uh, telling was the idea that the original trilogy more than anything is about a pursuit of freedom and there, I, there's nowhere where you hear the word liberty and freedom thrown around more than in conservative politics. It's, it's their most sacred buzzwords, um, liberty being uh, the number one of all. Um, and the rebels are not fighting for more infrastructure, better schools, <laughs> uh, more choice over women's bodies, um, and more, more spending for government projects. They're fighting to be free. And that is the original trilogy. Now, we've got a lot more since then, but the original trilogy is a fight for freedom versus a fight against terror um, and, and tyrannical government. So it's cut and dry. And again, this is kind of why everybody identifies with Star Wars, but conservatives in particular, the idea of fighting for freedom has always been... Um, I guess from a nationalistic standpoint, sort of a top priority. I think liberals tend to fight for freedom for self, um, and then that expands to to freedom for other people. It's the it's the choice argument that usually comes around. But the entire doctrine of the Bush years was this idea that we were going to spread freedom to the darkest corners of the world where they didn't have it, and that is something that for me coming up 
in that time as, as a young person and as a young person who was starting to find out that he probably was in fact a Republican, um, that was my initial worldview was we got to spread the freedom y'all. And then it sort of became clear many years later, wait, people don't want our version of freedom. Um, but that's in the original trilogy. That's all we have. It's people want to be free. And for conservatives, that's always kind of been one of their their things they always come back to. Just to note, it wasn't that many years later we saw how bad this policy was. Yeah, yeah. Um, it only it what, took six months. <laughs> basically, something like that. <laughs> this has always been one of the strongest arguments for Star Wars as conservative. The right, the conservative, and Republican movements have always been most effective at communicating to their constituents that government regulation, excessive taxation is bad for you, and this is something you should, quote, resist. And likewise, the rebels are resisting a certain government, which is tyrannical, engages in torture, slavery, and a whole plethora of other uh, tyrannical features. But in the real world, we don't have that. But however... Again, the Republicans have been able to capitalize on this message of resistance and that you just shouldn't take it, that you need to speak up for your own, quote, individual rights. And from what I understand, that means excessive. you should stand up against excessive taxation, regulation on your businesses, and um, overall a stymieing of your, quote, pursuit of happiness. Yeah. And... Again, they've been effective at saying, hey, you know what? The reason you're in this state is that government has been the problem. I and many others disagree. But what matters is what the voters think. And I got to say, Republicans, including, interestingly enough, Ted Cruz, (laughs) have been effective at carrying out this message. And I got to give them their props and the way they've used Star Wars. All right. We've got so much to cover and we have so little time to actually get all this accomplished. So... Kind of moving on quickly from the, from the crux of freedom and Becky Sharp's article, but uh, to the idea of capitalism in the prequels, there is a really strong narrative out there, and we've talked about it a couple times on the show now. Um, feel free to go back through the backlog, especially to the Star Wars' liberal episodes sounding like a separatist. Really good one. Um, about the Trade Federation, capitalism, um, and abuse of money and politics in the old republic. And what we have in terms of a situation in the old republic is companies with seats in the legislature. You've got the Trade Federation, the Techno Union, all those other places. They get they actually have representation as if they are uh, worlds or states. They just represent companies. And for a lot of people, they look at this and they go, "Hey, you see that corporations and corporatism and." Politics is run by the people who have the biggest checks to write or the biggest financial interests. Well, on the right, there are a lot of different schools of thought about this. And you and I talked about this before the show got started, about the idea that nobody likes money in politics. Yeah, no one on the left, no one on the right. There's this prevailing narrative that money in politics, Citizens United... Uh, corporations and rich people quote buying our elections is a detriment to our democracy and there have been polls out there upwards of 67 percent over two-thirds of the public believe this is a problem yeah it's true i mean when we when we talk about um how people feel about corporations uh, having great lobbyists on the hill and being able to access our politicians folks 
this is not a one-sided issue. This Absolutely is this not. is not an area where um, you know liberals can walk away from Star Wars and go, "Haha, we've had our view validated." Everybody hates this. There there is a very small corner of society that thinks it's totally fine. Um, you saw this in the Donald Trump election. Right. He ran against corporate interests. He ran against the Koch brothers and their entire network. He rejected all of that. And he said, I'm here for you. And I'm also going to ban the lobbyists. He kind of did that in the same way that uh, that the Obama administration did. But he was incredibly adversarial against right. the idea of taking people's money and even taking donations throughout the primary. He took some here and there. But for the most part, this is not a guy who was funded on um, the interest of corporations like you could say someone like Marco Rubio was because he's ideologically fine with that. So in the Republic, we on the right call this, and this is sort of different niches of the right, but there's there's this kind of corner of the right. It's the, the intellectual world. It's the reformicons. They call this crony capitalism. Um, this is kind of one of our major buzzwords. These are corporations that cut deals with the Congress of the galaxy. They are part of the political system there. They wheel and deal. The government accommodates companies and they make room for them. And they hear them out in a way that is not lobbying. It is actual representation. In the intellectual right, you don't have approval of that situation. You have absolute condemnation of that. And the way that you get to that is by having a government that tolerates that kind of thing. We do not have, and it is important to be clear, we do not have that situation in the United States. We have robust lobbying and we have robust amounts of donations that can be given to outside groups uh, for politics. But we don't have a situation that is nearly as off the rails as in the Republic. But the ironic thing is it's mostly Republicans, as we know, who tend to benefit from the interests and the lobbying of these large corporations. I'm thinking specifically of big oil and gas, mm-hmm. Exxon. Like, look at this. Our S- Secretary of State about to be confirmed is the CEO of ExxonMobil, or at least was, Rex Tillerson. Yeah. They've, even though, as you say, we don't have this yet, and the idea of it is so uh, virulent, they're so violently against it, we're taking this, I feel like, there are some steps being taken to get there in relatively Republican circles, and it is something to be wary of. And Donald Trump himself was a businessman. Mm-hmm. His profits from Trump hotels are, I think, tripling right now, and he's issuing some sort of requirement for diplomats and foreign officials to stay in his hotels when they come to D.C. I understand the sentiment, but in execution, I don't think it's too far from what we saw in the prequels. I think I think you're absolutely right. Um, the Republican Party is as corporatist as any any anything out there. Um, what we are talking about, to be clear, is conservatism and classical liberal free market conservatism um, is a rigid set of views and ideologies that do prohibit. They rigidly prohibit. Um, corporatism and government being in bed with corporate interests. Now, like Rex Tillerson is a great example of something that really riled, um, rattled the think tank class 
the Cato Institute and, and all and like the Heritage Foundation of Washington D.C. But your rank and file Republicans who have donors to to appeal uh, to appeal to or appease is the proper word. Um, they ended up caving on this vote. Marco Rubio, really great example. John McCain. Marco Rubio stood up to Rex Tillerson in the hearing. And reports the next week by the Washington Post indicated that he was getting incredible pushback from uh, the oil lobby and that he ended up going the other way. Big surprise. Um, This is not something that in the classic thought of conservatism is appropriate. The Republican Party is a company in an interest of itself. And Republican politics, just like Democratic politics, is driven by money, donations, and keeping the lights on. So I, I completely agree with you, and I, I could totally validate your point. But when we're talking about Star Wars as conservative, it's not Star Wars as Republican. Conservatism requires business right. and, and government to be separated. And I don't believe that in liberal and progressive politics you have as much um, rigidity around that issue uh, simply because when you are creating barriers to corporations – what you're actually doing is creating favoritism for a couple and then blocking out competition. Um, you have government contracts that are exclusive to a certain company or a certain provider that is in good. And that is why we get the word crony out of it, is these are people who have contracts with the government that cannot be broken or infringed upon by competition. And conservative school of thought demands competition. And so the republic, when I look at it and when conservatives look at it, they don't see some sort of incredibly Republican corporatist problem. They see their nightmare, which is zero competition for trade contracts, complete monopoly over trade routes by one company that is favored by the legislature and Coruscant, and there's zero opportunity for anybody to change those laws because those people have basically bought favor in the government. That is... The Soviet Union, that's China. That is like Chinese capitalism, which is communist capitalism. It's this incredibly horrible hybrid. It's like a nightmare hybrid. That's the thing we should all really be afraid of. (laughs) Sorry, just to know, what were the accents of the Trade Federation in episode one? Chinese. (laughs) You know, it's, and I actually, I think that came up last week. It was like, you know, there is this fear of, uh, of China. Um, in American society, we saw it in this election in, in oh, such God. a big way. But like Chinese corporatism is is really something that a lot of folks are afraid of. It's all about the numbers. It's all about the products. It's not about the people. And yeah. there is no opportunity for anyone to vie yeah. for a production contract in China. Yeah. You have to be the cousin of the president. Uh, that's just and how it works. This is also something interesting you see a lot in the Middle East, that sort of crony capitalism and families dominating the political sphere. But back to some of your previous points, liberals, progressives would absolutely agree with that assertion that conservatives have that these these corporate and crony capitalists have no place representing anyone in democracy. Despite some of the rhetoric of the past few years, corporations are not people. They're corporations. They're meant to garner cash. And the people are those who need government to step in when our laws, when our policies are not being executed well. And it's something for all of us to agree on and be cognizant of, especially right now. Yeah. Corporations are not people. And again, you mentioned the stat earlier, and I believe it was from Gallup, is 67% of Americans are not on board 
with that court ruling. Um, lawmakers who benefit from those contributions, they will always perfect or protect that court ruling and defend that court ruling. But rank and file Americans, left, right, and center, not a fan of, of Citizens United. So again, uh, this is not something that's mutually exclusive um, to a leftist point of view when it comes to the prequels and the way that money and politics is portrayed. If you would like a deeper conversation on the separatists and the corporations that were involved in the separatist movement and the Clone Wars, our episode right before this, um, it's called You Might Be a Separatist If, episode 21. We delve into this more in depth with Dennis Keithley of Starships, Sabres, and Scoundrels. And you should check that out. So there's something we need to discuss. Conservative writers actually making a case for the Empire as being good. Ah, yes. The elephant in the room, if you will. I mean, I think it's... Oh my god. Ugh, am I rolling so much right now? Applaud my pun. Vader shouldn't do puns and neither should we. We were reading a couple of articles this week from the Weekly Standard and other sources showing that, or trying to convey the message that the Empire is actually a good force bringing order, stability, and something to be emulated almost. I will just echo the exact words of Ted Cruz on this question, which is that it's deeply disturbing. Um, He was asked uh, about arguments in favor of the Empire and Imperial politics uh, a couple of years ago, him and Marco Rubio, it was probably at the start of the primary, and, and both of those responses, um, they used the words deeply disturbing. Um, I, I'm going to go with that. I think, I think on the right, there is a love of law and order. In fact, right. I don't think that. I, I know that there is a love of law and order. Um, there is a, a line between different camps of conservative thought. You have neoconservatism, you have classical liberalism, which is you know more libertarian libertarian and personal freedom um, conservatism uh, and you also just sort of have uh, limited government government orthodoxy and limited government orthodoxy and classical liberalism is directly at odds with neoconservatism which is this is hyper uh, militarized um, big military budgets um, law and order strict policing um, almost a sort of cultural uniformity, in a sense, around those values. And those are different camps that are completely at odds. And that piece that you are referencing is The Case for the Empire by Jonathan Last out of The Weekly Standard. And The Weekly Standard is run by Bill Crystal. He is an um, incredibly um, neoconservative uh, right. pundit and, and thought leader in that space. Um, had, the ear, had the ear of the Bush administration in the early 2000s. Uh, all of that. And and I don't really know how to wrap my head around some of these cases besides that people just don't like in that camp of conservative thought rabble-rousers. They don't like dissent. They don't like social unrest. They don't like riots in Baltimore uh, and unrest in Ferguson. They believe that unrest in Ferguson does not mean open open discussion on what are the causes of your unhappiness it is send out the riot police get these people in line then we'll talk about the issues um there's just that huge chasm there so this argument for the empire is the argument for uniformity and order and peace almost through a little bit of of terror if you will it goes to the root of conservatism as well that stretches back 
centuries to Thomas Hobbes. When he wrote the Leviathan, he was expressing that, hey, we shouldn't be rabble-rousing so much. We shouldn't be rebelling against the order and the security of the monarch deigns to us. That which we see also in Star Wars against the Emperor. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't really see explicit examples of the Empire doing its evil acts. The only thing we see is the destruction of Alderaan. We don't see the Empire slavery. We don't see its uh, tyranny on certain systems. We only see that in expanded universe material like Star Wars Rebels, um, some of the books, some of the comic books. They give a lot more detail, but based on what we see alone in the films, there is that order, there is that structure, there is that tradition almost, even though it's only been 20 years into the Empire. Yeah, you mentioned you you felt compelled by some of these arguments. By compelling, I meant to say that I think this could actually make some sense based on what we know of conser- some aspects of conservative ideology on previous uh, conservative uh, governments the, again it goes back to the sense of order security tradition and again just based on solely what we see in the films well no I'll, I'll help yeah. I'll help you out here so with the arguments for the empire you hit the nail on the head in in that we don't have a lot to back up um, the crimes and the horrendousness of the empire outside of the destruction yeah. of Alderaan which was an act of terror and genocide. But the, the underlying yeah, factor yeah. Of, of Alderaan is laid out by a writer for, I think he was with the Washington Post at the time, he's now at the Washington Free Beacon, um, Sonny Bunch. He wrote that there was a case for destroying Alderaan. And he's also an imperial apologist as a political writer, really believes in, in the system that they had set up. Um, and that Alderaan was, in fact... Um, you know, running guns, um, funding the rebellion, and creating galactic unrest. Right. This is and, a neoconservative argument. And yeah. <clears throat> however, I don't think you can really make a sort of argument for that because Alder, I, as Leia said, Alderaan was peaceful. It was Leia and her father who were funding the rebellion, who were perhaps the, quote, justified perpetrators against the Empire. There was no strategic or justified reason to destroy Alderaan than to force systems to stay in line with Tarkin's doctrine. He says this explicitly in A New Hope. I mean, I find that particular point to be nonsense. The talk of Alderaan's destruction being justified, you know, due to it being a war, it doesn't make sense because that in and of itself was a war crime. And you can make the argument from the neoconservative side that during the Iraq War and other conflicts, you had war crimes going on at that time too. If anything, this should be an argument against that neoconservative line of thought that the Empire and even the Republic, you know, during the prequel era, should not, those examples should not be followed based on the effects you see both in the Star Wars universe and in the real world. Yeah, and I, it kind of all comes back to, on, on the neoconservative side, the idea of just war theory, um, which is something applied to kind of get you from A to B on, on things like the dropping of, of the bombs on, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is, you know, we are engaged in conflict here, and we are trying to end this conflict to save lives from, from more conflict. Um, we can have a huge discussion on that at, at another time, but just war theory is using violence 
to end violence. And that is essentially what the Death Star was all about. Um, a single demonstration to get everybody in line behind the Emperor. No more questions, no more ifs and buts. I think it's a worthy discussion to be had whether or not the Emperor really did intend to keep using the Death Star over and over again as, as a serious weapon um, against other systems. I think power corrupts, and it is um, completely within reason to assume that the Emperor was going to keep destroying systems for minor infractions and small things. But you could go the way that the Emperor does want benevolent peace and he does want calm. They don't want more war. So the idea that you use the Death Star one time to end future fighting is compelling. But you see how that worked out because mm. you have people like Jyn Erso and Mon Mothma who will believe in freedom and the right uh, to stand up and express your views over all else. So I think Star Wars just reminds me all the time, like people will sacrifice anything to be free. You can scare them. Um, you can point a gun at them. You can point your Death Star at them. But they will unite with other people who believe in being free, and it all depends on your ability to connect with those people. You know, if you cannot communicate with other people who share the same values that you do, this is kind of the North Korean problem. If you don't have the ability to have conversations about freedom or hear about other places in the world that are free, then you're much more likely to think that you're alone. But in this galaxy where people can get connected to other folks who share their sense of disenfranchisement and, and, and longing for more, you're always going to have rebellion. The more you tighten your grip, Tarkin, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. Thanks for that, Suara. You're welcome. You just really, really put a bow on it right there. <laughs> you just really put a bow on it right there. I know. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought up um, the conservative arguments for the empire. I think that there is a little bit of, of devil's advocate posturing that goes on there. Um, everybody enjoys being a contrarian from time to time, um, and you definitely get that uh, on on certain corners of the right. So, you know, are there are there folks out there who make it really hard for me to make pro freedom conservative arguments for Star Wars? Yeah, it's really really hard because you have folks working for Bill Crystal who are pushing the idea that stormtroopers are fantastic and that the rebels are just rabble rousers who need to be put down. Um, no, no, I'm a, I'm a 1776 kind of guy, so uh, that doesn't work for me. But that is out there, so I am glad that you brought that up because that is uh, something that needs to be uh, discussed uh, probably more in depth in the future as well. But focusing on the here and the now, um, that kind of concludes what we thought were most of the pillars of Becky Sharp's piece on RetroZop.com, The Right Side Strikes Back. I really, really enjoyed this piece. Um, it was much deeper than what I think we were able to dip into today, and I give it a lot more credit than what I think I was able to reflect in our conversation today. She goes in-depth into George Lucas's backstory and a lot of the context around how these stories came together, his relationship with his parents, his father, Disney, uh, Lucasfilm, all these things that I think are really important to understanding the political underpinnings of Star Wars. So I really recommend you check it out in our show notes. It'll be pasted there. And you also go on to RetroZap.com and look up The Right Side Strikes Back. Uh, Suara, what did, what did you think? I like this article as well. I think it 
conveyed how you can see Star Wars in it from a conservative lens that's not about conservative versus liberal. This is about what people in a particular camp happen to take inspiration from for their own ideology. It's not about uh, shutting down a sort of liberal agenda. It's about how they are inspired to conduct themselves in their day-to-day lives. And I appreciated that because I've always said this, the be- one of the best things about Star Wars is how it has something for everyone, of age, class, religion, of political party. It's so adaptable for everyone. You know, I am quite progressive and liberal myself, and I've taken so much inspiration from Star Wars, but I'm happy. I am happy that people w- from anywhere, from any background, with genuinely good intentions can take that inspiration just as strongly as I can. And that's something we all should celebrate. Yeah, you always you always cap it off really well. I think with me, I always walk away from these discussions on what Star Wars is politically with the lesson of the cave on Dagobah. What's in there? And Yoda says, only what you take with you. And that is really exactly how we should think about the politics of Star Wars. If Lucas made this one-dimensional series of films that was meant to express a worldview and a political uh, political outlook that only appeals to 50% of America, much less the rest of the world, the rest of the world doesn't identify as Democrat and Republican. This is an international piece of success. Right. Um, this movie would not be what it is. We always have to think about Star Wars as being big, broad, easy and adaptable and then we can kind of hone in on what it means to us and why but it sure as heck does not take anything away from what you see in star wars suara as opposed to what i see in it and i just love having these conversations so michael connor from from retrozap thank you for kicking off this conversation becky sharp thanks for adding adding another page to it it's it's been a lot of fun to dig into and we will keep digging into it more and more and more now what I thought was a good way to end this conversation on Star Wars as conservative was a follow-up conversation that I had last week with Michael O'Connor uh, about the idea of tribalism. He wrote another piece in RetroZap about tribalism and how it drives both Star Wars and our real-world politics. I think this is a good way to wrap up this conversation so we can all remember that Uh, If we engaged in constant tribalism, and that was the way that we lived our lives, Suara and I wouldn't be doing this show right now. I would would just not be able to sit down and and talk about this stuff with a guy as nice and and, kind-hearted and and easy to listen and easy to talk to um, as Suara Saleh. So just a reminder, y'all, we need to make more friends. So here's this conversation with Mike O'Connor on the uh, the nature of tribalism in Star Wars and in real world politics. Tribalism is essentially it is what it sounds like. It's 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 a very natural thing. It's 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 pretty much the way that society has been since the beginning, which is that we all have our particular tribes, our particular preferences and points of view, and these communities that we build based on those uh, principles and points of view. And we go to these tribes that we feel safe in, that that echo our own feelings. Uh, And we tend to stick very um, resolutely to those those tribes and to those points of view. And not, once we get comfortable, not journey outside of that uh, very often, unfortunately. And 
while this is not necessarily a bad thing, it, it can be bad when we're not willing to just step outside of our bubble and, you know, confront somebody uh, in a friendly way or in a, in a conversational way to learn a little bit about what is outside of our purview, what is a little outside of our perspective. Um, and when this happens to an extreme uh, sense, what we get are, you know, kind of everything that we saw with fake news in the, in the past uh, election cycle, everything that we saw with, um, you know, people sticking with one particular point of view and, and, and not being able to just look a little bit outside of it. Um, we believe what we want to believe, and we discredit anything that doesn't uh, endorse our particular leanings or our particular perspective or points of view. Where did you see tribalism arise in Star Wars, maybe for the first time, um, and then you sort of built on it from there? Because you really touched every uh, facet, I think, of Star Wars and all the different sort of cliques and groups that are in uh in the Star Wars universe, where did you first see it clearly? And then how did you build on it from there? Right. Yeah. I think the, you know, the, the, the obvious ones, uh, the obvious tribes in the Star Wars universe are definitely the Gungans and the Ewoks. Um, you see it in return of the Jedi, um, in terms of when the, uh, the rebels show up there and they have a little bit of a disagreement, uh, with the Ewoks or, you know, the Ewoks don't know who they are, and they don't know who, who the Ewoks are, um, and uh, the Ewoks try to eat them, uh, and all normal, finally... All normal, <laughs> all normal. All normal, because this is what happens in, you know, when, uh, you know, two beings from different uh, different worlds, different uh, belief structures, ideas come together, and they don't quite know how to get along. They don't know quite how to uh, communicate with each other. Uh, they have different ideas of you know, the ways in which, uh, in which their own worlds work. The Gungans essentially represent, you know, unlike the Ewoks, they represent an, uh, an intelligent species, um, that has been, you know, because the Ewoks are a primitive species. So it, it, it's not quite the same sort of thing as with the Gungans. The Gungans are clearly advanced. Um, they have technological uh, innovations that are amazing. They have under underwater cities. They have this shield technology. Um, they're they're clearly you know they can speak. Um, you know, of course, the ability to speak does not make you intelligent. Qui Gon reminds us, but <laughs> nevertheless, the Gungans themselves, you know, outside of Jar Jar, are a fairly intelligent bunch. Um, and we can see you know in their culture and in their society um, that they are you know they may not have these you know, regal uh, architectural um, uh, lifestyles and, and, and incredible uh, pageantry that the, the Naboo humans have. Um, but there is something still quite elegant and impressive about their society. Uh, and, and so we see with them, and in terms of the way that the Naboo treat them and the way that the Gungans believe they're being treated by the Naboo, um, we see the difference between these two tribes. They both want the same thing, uh, but they aren't willing to work with one another. And there's that great scene where Obi-Wan uh, and Qui-Gon have to remind them that the Naboo and the Gungan form a symbiote circle, that what happens to one will affect the other. Uh, and that is really the big message of that film is about symbiotes and parasites, about you know working together, um, 
or letting the parasites come in, the Sith, the uh, Emperor, um, uh, or the one-day Emperor, Sidious, uh, come in and, and leech off of your, you know, the healthy body that is your planet. Um, if you don't work, if your whole body is not working together, uh, mm-hmm. you're going to have the parasites come in and, and you know, make you sick. Uh, and, and we see that, you know, in our own society, we see that with, um, you know, with, uh, you know, everything that's going on now, everything that's been going on the past uh, eight years in terms of, you know, uh, the left digs in. Um, and so the right digs in, the right digs in, so the left digs in. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's this recurring uh, problem that we have where we can't, you know, find a way to come to a common ground, uh, compromise, um, bipartisanship. You know, if we can't meet somewhere in the middle on certain issues, then uh, we're going to be forced to, you know, kind of do things the way the, the empire does them, um, which is just push for your way of thinking um, and, you know, attack your enemies and, and just, you know, push everything through that, that you want and ignore everybody else. And I don't think either side of the political aisle should be uh, looking at that sort of um, that sort of plan as something that's healthy for the, the country. You know, I think you, you hit on a great point with the Gungans and, and the line kind of came up uh, in my head. It was, it was when Boss Nass, you know, says, you think yourselves so great. You think your brain's so big. <laughs> um, you know, just this this long divide and this bitter resentment between these two societies. Um, actually, it's more of a resentment on the Gungan side and just sort of a complete uh, dismissal on, on the Naboo side. Um, and I love yes, the idea yes. that uh, they they are part of one whole, and they need to come together. Um, it doesn't mean yes. it doesn't mean that they have to to cave to one another, but there's this this need to be humble. Um, and when Padme led her group in taking a knee, um, even just as in a symbolic sort of throw a bone sort of way uh, before Boss Nass and the Gungans. It, it just it gave him what he needed personally to be able to come forward to the table. Um, and that speaks a whole lot about politics. Um, you, well, have, you have to humble yourself before people sometimes to get things done. Um, or you can just kind of keep talking to your people and let them keep talking to their people uh, and then talk to the media and then just try to cudgel one another through public opinion and you will never actually accomplish anything such as maybe, you know, legislation or passing a budget <laughs> is something that doesn't get done anymore. Yeah, no, it, that's, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And, and it's exactly, you know, the point I was trying to make um, in, in talking about that scene and, and how important that scene is to the film is that, you know, Queen Amidala, you know, in that first film, um, she is, she's ignorant. She's, she's been, you know, she's grown up her whole life, uh, as royalty. Um, and she doesn't know what the outside galaxy is like. She doesn't know what the, the Gungans are like. She's been isolated, you know, and it's not necessarily her fault, but she hasn't seen, you know, how the other half lives. Uh, and so the experience that she has in that film is, is really one of the great, you know, character moments, the, the, the growth of that character in that film, 
where she sees that slavery exists in the Republic. Uh, she sees what it's like to, you know, live on a desert planet, a crappy desert planet where sand yeah, is everywhere, yeah. uh, as opposed to the beautiful Naboo where everything is perfect all the time. But, but I think that that moment where she decides to, you know, just show a little, I don't know, just a little dignity, a little, little deference, just some respect to pay a little respect to the Naboo. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't always require having to, you know, make an enormous sacrifice um, to to just you know break bread with people. You know, uh, to just show them that you're willing to listen to what they have to say, and that maybe you don't ha- you don't agree on everything, and you won't come to a common ground on every potential issue, but that if you can just reach out to them, you know, in some small way, that maybe on even if it's only one thing out of ten things. You can agree on that one thing out of ten, and and move forward and, and make something happen. Well, I think um, one of my my favorite examples of this, um, I'm, I'm going to butcher the reference, but it was it was the SNL skit uh, for Black Trivia, and yes, it was yeah, it was the yeah. one with Tom Hanks, where Tom yeah, Hanks yeah, was I the saw uh, that. yeah Tom Hanks was the Make America Great Again uh, redneck uh, that they had yeah. on to Black Trivia as the guest that week. And I mean, this was this was written about in in you know in Vox and Upworthy and BuzzFeed. And everybody got a huge kick out of it for about a week, and they took the message of yeah. it. They were like, you know what? This this entire skit highlighted that uh, you know your average uh, rural Kentucky white guy has a lot in yeah. common um, with the black community and it's just it's just sort of you don't know it until you actually get in a room and you have a conversation about stuff and you realize you have the same yeah. problems and this skit was was just amazing um it not not only was it just really really funny and and well portrayed by by Tom Hanks but um you know when you just kind of came around to these shared cultural values uh this shared sense of community it, when it, you know, it came down to actual politics and it was like Oh, we we don't really you know see eye to eye to eye on you know this whole like all lives matter thing, um, right. but that's just sort of that's an example of speaking different languages because the skit ends there. But if they had actually spent time talking about what does Black Lives Matter mean? Why do why do some people think that all lives matter is an acceptable comeback? That's a conversation that you can have, but first you have to acknowledge that you're speaking different languages. Um, and, and, you know, just because you're speaking English doesn't mean you're speaking the same language. I think that's a great point, Stephen. I think there's a huge element to all of this that is, uh, is vocabulary. It's, uh, it's, it's words, you know, it's, it's how we communicate with each other. And when you, when you talk with someone and, you know, they throw a slogan at you or they throw something that they've heard, um, you know, that, that represents, you know, their political point of view, uh, that gives you pause because that immediately, you know, makes you associate them with that, with everything in that political, political cause and everything that you have heard about that political cause, everything that you, uh, either like or dislike about it with the, with the films with the star Wars films. Um, you know, this is a, this is a recurring, uh, kind of, um, theme and, and sentiment in the films is that uh, characters don't get along, you know, in, in the Star Wars. Like, we, we often 
you know, when we look back and we think about the films, we say, oh, well, you know, there are all these, these friends, you know, Han, Luke, and Leia, they're these, they're these, you know, best of friends, and we see them in the, in the publicity photos and everything. These characters can't stand each other the first time they, they uh, lay eyes on one another, you know? Uh, Han is a, is a crook, he's a criminal. Um, you know, Leia is royalty, and, and Luke's this, you know, he's, he's this uh, farm boy. He's, Sheltered farm, farm boy. boy. <laughs> Sheltered farm boy, you know? Uh, they, they, you know, they don't really, you know, like each other. You know, right from the beginning, their, their sparks are flying. But the point is that in the original Star Wars film, uh, all of these characters, uh, and, I, and I should include Obi-Wan in that too, um, all of these characters have lost their tribes. They are completely, you know, without a tribe. Uh, Luke's family is murdered. Um, Obi-Wan is the last of the Jedi. Uh, Leia has her entire planet blown up. Even Han and Chewbacca, you know, they're criminals, but they're on the run from their own criminal fraternity. Uh, Jabba the Hutt has a bounty on them. So, you know, they don't even have, not only are they, you know, outcasts from, you know, the rest of, you know, civilized society, they're also outcasts from the rest of the, the, the criminal uh, world that they... Uh, they work in, you know, that is their, is their uh, way of making ends meet. So these characters have no choice but to look outside of their particular, uh, their particular tribes and to find some kind of common ground and to find some way to work together. And, and that's why they succeed is that they all come together and they, they build a larger community. They build a, a larger tribe. Uh, in the Rebel Alliance that is more accepting of people that come from all over. Um, and there is nothing more um, effective at breaking down barriers than getting in the trenches with other people. And with Star Wars, you know, some of the instances that come to my mind, particularly with Han, Leia, and Luke, are when they get into a fight, uh, you know, with each other, or, or, or together against stormtroopers and against TIE fighters. I mean... When they are fleeing the Death Star and also trying to escape the cell block on the Death Star, um, that camaraderie and that sort of, uh, you know, hey, you're all right um, attitude that you get when you fight alongside somebody against a shared enemy and for a shared idea and a cause, that's incredibly powerful. Um, And from those moments on, once you get in the trenches with somebody, um, everything can change, and I think the only way to take that in the real-world context, you know, spending time with other people, um, doing outreach, actually doing things like um, charity and community development, you go and meet people, and that's how you get in the trenches and get your hands dirty and start to hear and learn the stories and the capabilities and the hearts of other people, and I think that's really what it comes down to. And I, and I would just like to add one other thing just to, to bookend the comment I made at the the beginning of the show that, that I didn't really get to, to uh, explore, and so it'll, it's going to seem kind of weird, um, but uh, it was just a, a, a quick thing about the, the Civil War, and that at the end of this terrible conflict in which brother fought brother, in which you know the entire country was as divided as it's ever been, um, the, the two sides came together, um, uh, General Johnston and General Sherman. These two could not have been any more different, and... They formed a lasting friendship after that, um, you know, after this terrible conflict that happened and, and killed countless Americans, uh, both from completely different sides of the aisle. They came together um, and they had a personal friendship that, that lasted. In fact, uh, General Johnston was a, 
a pallbearer uh, at uh, Sherman's funeral and even passed away from being at his funeral without his hat on. He caught pneumonia. Uh, someone told him he should put his hat on. And he said, you know, if the roles were reversed and Sherman was here, he would have his hat off as a, as a sign of respect. Uh, so I think we have to look uh, towards this idea of, um, you know, we can find common ground. As divided as this country seems right now, um, we can work together. We can uh, be a better society and a better people. I don't know how to follow that up. You all, you always, you always steal the show, Michael. Um, thanks again oh, thank for you. I thanks again. That. Yeah, no, you really do. Um, thanks again for taking the time. That was a really great conversation. Yeah, Mike is always a real joy to talk to. I mean, he is just incredibly smart, really thoughtful. And, and just kind of like you, just someone I just love to sit down and bounce some ideas around off with someone with a strong sense of empathy and connectivity to other people. So uh, what a treat. It always is nice to talk to Mike. Now, we are running a long show today, y'all. So thank you for staying with us. We're going to run through listener email, and then we're going to get to our Bantha fodder, which is always something that people enjoy. So do stick around for hearing that. And then we will wrap up uh, episode 22 of Beltway Banthas. So... In listener email, this week we've got a letter from Landon Kennedy. Hi, Landon. Landon says, hey, I am loving the podcast more and more with each new episode. As am I, Landon. I just recently began watching The Clone Wars again on Netflix, and I was curious about The Mandalorian Death Watch. They're a really interesting group, and the Previsla versus Darth Maul fight with the Darksaber is just awesome. Totally is. Anyways, I was curious as to their role in society. Are they a mafia-type organization? They have one boss, it seems, in Previsla, and they do attacks in the city, uh, and, but, but they, they were mostly underground for a long time before making an appearance again. Anyways, I was just curious what your thoughts were. Keep making great content. Thanks for the letter, Landon. So I am not a Mandalorian expert, uh, so I'm gonna, not going to do your question total justice, but essentially what is going on with Death Watch is they are a group uh, who are completely disheartened, uh, disenchanted, that's not a word, um, disenchanted with the current political directory of Mandalore. They believe that the current ruler of Mandalore, and I don't remember the name. Duchess Satine. Duchess Satine uh, has, I'm trying to say this the right way, but uh, moved Mandalore away from a culture of, of, of violence, competition, and honor, and that they are pacifist. This is a, a Duchess Satine is, is driving Mandalore towards a, an era of peace, and this is a group of people uh, under Pre Vizsla who stay true to Mandalorian values, which is uh, strength and competition. And if you are stronger than someone who's in power, they shouldn't be in power. And so Pre Vizsla has his own sect of people who are loyal to this traditional view of what it means to be a Mandalorian. They are traditionalists and conservatives in a sense of being Mandalorian. Um, and uh, Duchess Seen is incredibly progressive in that regard and that she's moving them towards something different and a different kind of future. And they want to go back to the way that it was. Um, Death Watch is that group. They're not terrorists necessarily, but they kind of are. And they lead a coup against the government. And they use uh, Darth Maul and his band. Uh, what was his group called? Uh, was it Death Watch? No. It, shoot, it was something else. Anyways, but they partner with, with Darth Maul uh, to basically give their movement some teeth and they lead a coup against Duchess Satine's government and take it over. Um, so they really are a, a political faction, but also a, a military split since in the Mandalorian sense, everybody's a fighter. Everybody's a soldier. So when you're talking about political factions and military factions, like it could be like a, a junta, like a military coup, 
Um, it's kind of all one and the same because everyone who's involved in politics in theory can also fight. So I think that's kind of the best way to look at, at death watches. Yeah. They are a political faction, but in the same sense, they're also a military splinter. Yeah. And I just want to add in the Knights of the old Republic games, you had this strong tradition that to be a Mandalorian, you had to survive wars. You had to survive battles. Yeah. You had to show you were to show you had grit to be a Mandalorian, basically. Whew, they were tough to fight in Knights of the Old Republic. Very, My gosh. Very much so. Really, really stressful. And, Suara, we had one more email. So we have a message from Will Beckham, who has recently re- listened to two episodes. He says, Hey, guys, really excellent podcast. This is the second episode I've heard in its entirety, and I really like it a lot. It puts forth a lot of reasonable opinions and manages to leave room for disagreement. I really like The Economist, etc., but oftentimes I feel like I know what they're going to say about a lot of issues before I even read the articles. Not here. Oh, yeah. And then he goes into a discussion, uh, his own take, of something we discussed in our Rogue One episode on Mon Mothma, the Rebel Alliance Council, and the the, uh, message about democracy. He says, I really agreed how to make Mon Mothma... Sorry, let me repeat. I really agreed to how Mon Mothma's need to make a unanimous consensus inhibits her ability to do anything. However, I would characterize the political climate she faces as more of a military council rather than a peacetime senate slash legislator slash parliament. The reason why you must have one commander, who you must follow all orders from as long as said orders are legal, in a military context is because she bears responsibility for everything that happens or fails to happen. That's why you're required to follow them. Diffusing that leadership across multiple people dilutes accountability as well as responsibility. I would argue that's why George Washington was able to lead the Continental Army so well in the Revolution, because everything lived or died by him. By contrast, who is the one guy in charge of Iraq, Afghanistan? Who is the military commander? Was it the ambassador? What about CIA intelligence presence or the USAID development people? You can't hold people accountable or force decision-making in the context of a war when there is no clear chain of responsibility. That's why the Rebel Alliance can't do anything. It's not because it's a, quote, parliament, and people are bickering like parliaments do. It's because there's a war, and there is no clear commander. Really interesting argument there. Yeah, I'm glad we have listeners who are uh, so much smarter than we are who (laughs) dish out that personal experience, because, yeah, that's, uh, that's a lot. That's a lot to chew on right there. All right. Well, this has been a whirlwind of a show. We are in the home stretch here. This brings us to our legendary and much-loved section of Bantha Fodder, where both of our hosts, myself and Suara, just share something that's been on our mind, on our hearts for the for the past couple of weeks since we've last talked to you in an unfiltered and, and unchecked way where, you know, no interruptions, no questions, no this, no that, just, just kind of letting it all out. So, Suara, what's been on your mind? I really wish I had a more positive bantha fodder this week, but events in the political and geopolitical world have forced me to say otherwise. Trump did it. He issued out an actual Muslim ban on people coming in from seven countries that have had terrorist or war-related activities in the past couple of years. Just yesterday or the day before yesterday, you had refugees and immigrants, visa card holders, and green card holders coming into the country who were detained at airports and yesterday were not allowed to see lawyers. And it's really scary to see this because 
I need to know in this executive order, it explicitly said if they're Muslim and that they would prioritize Christians. Most people agree, based on the history of our country and our legal understanding, is that this is unconstitutional and something that should be concerning to everyone. Thankfully, yesterday you had judges in New York and Virginia issue stays against the executive order, and you've had some airports complying, but today and last night I saw at Dulles International Airport here in D.C., immigration officials refusing to comply with that stay, and essentially they're going, they're uh, acting in contempt of court. Mm -hmm. So... I just have a message for our listeners on whatever side of the political aisle you're on. Please stay informed about this. Please remember our history. Please remember our constitution because laws matter. Our image matters. This is a terrible image to the rest of the world and how extremist groups might be using this, such as ISIL. And call your congressmen, call your senators, And remember what this country stands for, please. That's all I have to say. Suara, thank you so much for that. Um, In the interest of time, I'm going to forego my Bantha fodder this week so we can wrap this up. I'm your host, Stephen Kent. You can find me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Kent 89. That's Stephen with a PH underscore K-E-N-T 89. And you can find Suara online as well. You can find me on Twitter at Suara Saleh 1. That's S-W-A-R-A-S-A-L-I-H 1. You can find some of my writing on Newsweek, on Huffington Post. And now I've recently published on RetroZap. Hey, congratulations. Thank you. I posted a Carrie Fisher tribute piece and I hope you'll read it. It talks about how Carrie Fisher inspired me to be a feminist since I was a boy, and I think you guys will really enjoy it. And it was a great piece. Um, Thank you. You can get connected with Beltway Banthas on at Beltway Banthas at Twitter, and shoot us an email at beltwaybanthas at gmail.com. We love, 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 love to hear from you. Um, Thoughts, concerns, criticisms, whatever. Um, We will always email you back, and we just really value that connectivity uh, with our listeners on the show. If you get an opportunity, please do leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or just leave a comment on SoundCloud. Uh, We just like to know how we're doing. And those reviews help us uh, get the show out to more people. When you leave a review on iTunes in particular, it's more likely that iTunes will then feed our show to other people who are enjoying it. So leave those five stars, y'all. We really appreciate it. And that's all the time we have for this week, folks. Thanks for staying with us. And we will see you the week after next for another episode of Beltway Banthas. Have a great week and may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Always. Always.